Today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I think there is this big gray zone where we traditionally, conventionally tell women, it's okay for you to take up to 12 months to do absolutely nothing while you're trying to get pregnant. And 12 months for me is so much anxiety, right? Like, oh my God, if someone told me to wait 12 months of trying to do something, to monitor ovulation, to monitor basal body temperature, and then at the end of it, I still am not pregnant, I would be freaking out. Hello, hello. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. And today I'm talking with my girl, Dr. Amatma Simmons. She's the CEO of the Holistic Fertility Institute. She does amazing work, and her specialty is for those who have struggled with recurrent miscarriage. I'm excited for you to hear her talk through her approach. Whether you're just starting into this fertility journal or you've been at it a while, she's dropping pearls and you need to write them down. Before we get started though, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, Chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness. No need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's start the show. Dr. Amatma, I am so excited to have you on the Root Cause Medicine podcast. I am excited to be here. It's so nice to see you, always. It's nice to see you too. And we were talking off camera that we will actually get to see each other live in person next week at a big conference, which is always fun. That's where we go and see our friends. We go to conferences. (laughs) Yes, like you want to hang out with cool people. You got to go to the cool conferences. You got to go, especially because we all live in different states. And so it's a great way for us to connect. And there you will be speaking on fertility, which is our topic of today. So I'm excited to get you before your talk so we can pick your brain because I've been getting a lot of questions around fertility from two different views. One is I'm just starting or I'm thinking of starting. But I'm also getting questions on, I'm in the middle of it and it hasn't happened yet. So what do I do next? And I thought, well, this will be great because you'll be on and we can just get your insight into this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think both of those conversations are just so important because fertility is just such a gray area in so many ways. I talked to a radiologist this morning. He is the partner of a woman who is struggling with fertility. So they came to this call together and she's like totally freaking out. Right. (laughs) And then he's like, she's just being crazy and irrational. Tell her to calm down. And, and I was like, oh, this is going to be fun (laughs) because he's the MD with all the like technical knowledge. And then she's just like, can you just please listen to me and validate my anxieties? Yeah. Right. So yeah, I think there is this big gray zone where we traditionally, conventionally tell women, it's okay for you to take 
up to 12 months to do absolutely nothing while you're trying to get pregnant. And 12 months for me is so much anxiety, right? Like, oh my God, if someone told me to wait 12 months of trying to do something, to monitor ovulation, to monitor basal body temperature, and then at the end of it, I still am not pregnant, I would be freaking out. So I get it. I get the anxiety. (laughs) I understand. And as you say all the time, and I said this for years in practice, there's so much you can do. Yes. Why wait 12 or even six or three months, whatever it is, depending on your age and what's happening. And the same goes for miscarriage. That's the other thing that royally pisses me off is that I would have patients that would come in and they would say, I had a miscarriage or two, but my OBGYN told me until I had three, will we not get worked up? And I thought, well, that's just absolutely insanity. Like, you think I'm going to make you wait through three before I do something? There's so much you can do. And that's why women have so many questions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We need you. It's also like, at what point do I need to be concerned? At Mm -hmm. what point do I need to like rein it in and quote unquote relax? And I put it in quotes because I'm not telling anyone to just go relax. But there is a way of when do I need to dive in more and when do I need to take a step back? And how do we figure out where we are in that spectrum? Yes, that absolutely. Actually, before we get started, for people who don't know who you are, since I've just jumped in because you're a freaking expert to me, give us a little rundown of who you are, where you come from, where you stand for, and around fertility so people know, and then we'll just start right from the beginning. Like, what do you do when you're going to just first start trying? Yeah, yeah. So I'm a naturopathic doctor by training. I've been in practice for 15 years, 10 of which were have been hyper-focused on fertility and micro-focused on recurrent pregnancy loss. So we work with all fertility people, but pregnancy loss is kind of our jam. Exactly what you said, like, let's not wait for three miscarriages. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and I'm board certified in naturopathic endocrinology, like yourself. Hey. <laughs> so that pretty much is a fancy way of saying I love hormones and I love to approach it naturally. And what else? I love, 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 love supporting healthier babies being born into the world. Which is 100% what we're here to talk about today. So starting there, let's, we'll divide this up into obviously two sections. Like I said in the beginning, I have all the people who say, Carrie, what do I do? I'm just thinking about starting. And then the people who are going, Carrie, what do I do? I've been trying. I'm not pregnant. And I also don't have a lot of guidance or I'm not ready or don't want to do maybe something more assisted, IVF, et cetera. So starting from the, hey, I'm just about to try or we are just starting the process of trying, however that looks for somebody, they come to you, where do you start? Mm -hmm. What's important for them to know? I think for both people, kind of are in very similar buckets often because most of the time they don't have any lab testing, right? So start with labs, (laughs) like test, don't guess. Let's figure out what is happening. Even if it's surface level testing, let's just do the surface level testing. And for me, that is follicle stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, anti-malarian hormone, and estradiol. Those ideally on day two, three, or four of your cycle are a really good primary indicator of what might be happening with fertility. Are there more tests? Absolutely. 
should you do every test under the sun? Maybe, but probably not out of the gate. (laughs) So start with the basics and honestly, like really understanding what those hormones are and how they are playing a role in our fertility are is very helpful to understand what to do about it. And the last thing I'll say about the labs is there is a very big diversion between what's considered normal and what's considered optimal. So when you're looking at your results, you really need to know what the filter is for optimal. And if you're outside of that optimal, you have a really good starting point of what you need to focus on. And I think you probably hear this often. They come to you and say, I've been told I'm fine. I'm normal. Everything looks in range. And then you look at their lab work and go, oh, good gracious. Yeah. No. Yeah million hundred percent of the time. (laughs) Like it happens so often it's frustrating, right? It's not any longer like, oh yeah, like you're a little bit outside of the, what we consider optimal. No, these are like people that are drastically less than optimal as far as hormones go. And they're told they're fine. They're normal. I literally, that couple that I was talking about this morning, he was told his sperm are normal. 100% of the time, guys are told their sperm are normal. And I was like, I want to know the numbers. So he looks it up. Morphology was 3%. Eesh. 3% morphology is not normal. No. Even in the conventional paradigm, 3% is not normal. But he said, well, but there's so many sperm, they just figured it was fine. And I was like, no, the fact that your body is making abnormal sperm is the problem. That is a problem. It's not that you have millions of sperm, so it's fine. It's more like, well, your body's producing a very low number of normal sperm. What does that tell you? You're a doctor. And he was like, yeah, I guess that's not so good. Like, I guess not. <laughs> when you reframe it that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So normal is just like kind of the bare minimum that doctors offer. And it's relatively simple to just like take the results that they tell you are normal. Don't settle for that and just put it through a filter of is this optimal? And I love too that you brought up the semen analysis because I think we also find in hetero couples, majority of the workup and blame pressure is put on the female. And it's just assumed, like, we'll get to him eventually, or he's probably okay. Or they'll ask a few quick questions. Do you get erections? Do you produce semen mm-hmm. in the first place? Mm-hmm. Have you had kids before? Oh, great. You're fine. Yeah. And yet you and I know we've seen a whole lot of semen analysis that are just like that example, just low count. They look weird. They're not swimming. They're sticky. None of the things you want when you're trying to get pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. And there is this weird myth that sperm don't change. Like if you've had a child 18 years ago, I don't care who you are. Your sperm are not the same from 18 years ago. They're turning over every three months. So what makes us think that what was happening then is still happening now? And the other piece is really like we've so hyper-focused on the age thing in the fertility world around women in particular. But if we take a step back and say it's not actually about the age, it's about what's happening in the years that you are waiting. 
you are not sleeping, stressing yourself out, living a toxic lifestyle, drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, right? Like all the anti-fertility things, then yes, your age is going to very much play a role in your fertility. But that is equivalent to the role that it would play in the man if he was also doing those things. So like to me, I'm like, what's happening with the sperm is also happening with the egg and vice versa. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, all of the lifestyle things are still going to have an impact on your reproductive abilities. Hallelujah. I love that you just said that. That's amazing. All right, let's go back to the lab part though. So for people who are brand new, will you explain FSH, follicle stimulating hormone, anti-mullerian hormone, luteinizing hormone? Give a quick overview for somebody who's, again, just starting or maybe is in the midst of trying and these are very foreign words to them or they were told, quote, you're normal. Yeah, yeah. So anti-mullerian hormone, my way of sharing what that is, is basically the eggs in your ovaries that are saying, hey, I'm here. I'm saying hello. That's anti-malarian hormone. The more eggs you have, the more of that hormone going out from each of the eggs. And they're all saying, hey, as the number of eggs go down, the AMH anti-malarian hormone is going to go down. There's just not as much. There's not as many eggs saying hi. That number is there's a lot of like possibilities of what's considered normal there. And it's very age dependent. So essentially up to 35, they kind of discount your AMH unless the AMH is below one. If it's below one, and technically it's 1.06, AMH became popular with the advent of IVF. And what they found was when women had an AMH above 1.06, they were responding better to IVF drugs and having better IVF outcomes. So they were like, oh, that's our cutoff. (laughs) Below that number, bad fertility. Above that number, great fertility. In reality, you can get pregnant below an AMH of 1.06. But as that number is going down, you can also assume that there's a correlation to the number of eggs that are in the ovaries. And potentially that's going to create an environment where it may be harder to get pregnant. And then for me, like the couple I was talking about this morning, the woman's 32, but her AMH is 0.49. I was like, well, in your case, we should not treat you like a 32-year-old who's waiting 12 months to conceive because guess what? If that number is going to keep lowering as you're going through every single month and I don't know exactly how many number of months you have, but I can tell you it's not that of an average 32-year-old, right? So I think it's important to remember that number is not the hat that we hang everything on, but it is still a good indicator of what might be going on and how urgent is this for you as an individual. FSH is follicle-stimulating hormone. That's basically the hormone from the brain to the ovary saying, hey, make some follicles. And the ovaries say, okay. And when they don't say, okay, that FSH is going to keep going up. It's basically the analogy I use is like, it's the boss hanging out behind you and is like, you're doing that wrong. No, you spelled that word wrong. No, you got to work faster. You got to work better. I need more. That's kind of what the brain is doing to the ovary. And guess what? In that environment, you're probably not doing your best work. 
Similarly, the ovary is not doing its best work if your FSH is high. So optimal for FSH is below 7, normal is below 10, and then above 10, we're getting into like, oh shit, territory. Estradiol is the next hormone. So follicle-stimulating hormone signals to the ovary. The ovary produces a bunch of follicles. As they grow, they are signaling back to the brain with estrogen, saying, hey, thank you, follicles are growing. I don't need that signal anymore. And as the estrogen builds, it will trigger LH, the luteinizing hormone, which will then trigger ovulation. So the estradiol is a signal of A, are there follicles being produced? But B, it, are those follicles producing too quickly? Is there estrogen somewhere else in the body that's playing a role in whether or not the ovaries are responding properly? And if that surge is happening too quickly or too late, that's going to have an impact on egg quality. So for example, optimal for estradiol is 30 to 50. And these are all U.S. units, you guys. I can never remember the actual units. If you want a conversion, I have a whole chart I can send over. But U.S. units, 30 to 50 for estradiol. And when estrogen or estradiol is above 50 on cycle day three, we can assume that person has too much estrogen. Likely that's going to cause estrogen surge sooner or it's going to prolong the surge because estrogen's not building and there's no such thing as a surge then. So in either scenario, you either ovulated too early or too late and got shit quality eggs being ovulated. So there is this like Goldilocks zone for estrogen, not enough, not and too much are both just as bad. And then the last hormone that we're going to talk about is the luteinizing hormone, and that's the surge that is going to cause ovulation to happen. Luteinizing hormone is optimal to be about a one-to-one ratio with FSH and below seven. When that ratio is higher, so LH is like maybe a two-to-one ratio to FSH, that can be a little indicator light. It's not a diagnosis at all. It's an indicator light of have you made sure as the provider that this person does not have PCOS? So that's where that comes into play. What I'm noticing is that there are lots of women with LH very low compared to the FSH. And I've seen a pattern and it's like, this is not backed by any research that I know of. Not yet. (laughs) Yeah, yet. But I'm seeing this pattern where LH is maybe one and FSH is two. So it's like FSH is double than LH. My sense is that there is kind of the ovulation isn't happening efficiently. That's what I'm sensing from basal body temperature tracking. And what we often see is this stepladder kind of ovulation surge in temperature. And as we improve their LH and FSH ratios, that surge will be like quick rise of temperature from day before ovulation to the day after ovulation. There's a nice surge. So we're noticing it change. So I'm like, well, it's doing something. And I don't quite know what the words are for that yet, but it's in my mind as like, oh, this is a pattern that keeps appearing. And I don't know if it's a big deal or if it's not. We just notice that it changes 
as people's fertility improves. <laughs> Which ultimately, right, we're hope is a good thing. Yes. It is for their outcomes. Actually, let's talk about ovulation because I think we don't get taught that in school. We didn't, you know, in high school, middle school, that's generally not always a part of sex ed. I had a lot of patients over the years who were like, I don't actually know what the word ovulation means. And all I know is that we're having sex every other day or every third day to just try to catch a window somewhere. Thankfully, now social media has really taught a lot of people around measuring temperature, cervical mucus, things like that. But can you go into the ins and outs of ovulation, kind of why it's important for fertility and how to yeah. monitor it? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So ovulation on the very basic, 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 basic level is your ovaries produced anywhere from two even one follicle up to like 15 follicles in any given natural cycle. After the development of all of these follicles, the body detects like, what is the follicle that is putting out the best signal? It looks the best. It feels the best. It's got the right words and right moves. And it releases, it calls it the queen, or it doesn't call it, we call it the we queen call it. follicle. <laughs> the queen follicle. And that queen follicle will be released, pushed out of the ovary into the fallopian tube. And it travels down the fallopian tube where hopefully there are sperm hanging out or the sperm are like headed in that direction to be able to fertilize the egg. The egg has... So the follicle inside the ovary had what's called a corpus luteum, the shell of the egg. The shell got left behind, and that shell has a really crucial function that I'll share about in a second. But the egg got released, and the egg still has a protective layer around it. That's called the zona pellucida. So when the sperm get to the egg, there are maybe hundreds of thousands of sperm that made it to this egg. They found the egg, half went the wrong direction, <laughs> the other half went the right direction, hopefully, and they made it to the egg. And now it's a race for who's going to get into the egg. <laughs> and again, survival of the fittest. So that sperm needed to have the right motility, the right movement, and the right morphology. Essentially, the head and tail of that sperm need to be really high quality to actually break through that zona pellucida. So nature has set up this like beautiful process to only allow vital, vital sperm to make it through and fertilize this egg. If it was super easy, we may have a problem <laughs> on the planet of overpopulation. So that wouldn't be so good. It's a natural mechanism to make it hard in some way so that it we don't overpopulate the earth. The problem comes when the sperm is not so great quality and they're not able to do their job. Guess what? They're probably not going to break through the zona pellucida and fertilize this egg and it will never turn into a baby. And Similarly, if that egg was maybe poor quality, it didn't have all of the right features, it may not get fertilized, or worse, it will get fertilized and then turn into an embryo that maybe doesn't implant, which would be called a chemical pregnancy, or it implants and then ends in a loss, hence a miscarriage. So it's 
better, it's almost better if a low quality egg does not get fertilized or if poor sperm don't fertilize a good quality egg. In either scenario, it's almost better if it doesn't happen because the outcomes of what happens when it does fertilize poor quality is survival of the fittest kicks in again. Sorry, you cannot turn into a baby. In some ways, I get it. Emotionally, it's super hard. You're pregnant, you've waited so long, and now it's not happening. But in reality, if we knew for 100% sure that it was not a good quality embryo, we probably wouldn't want it to survive anyway, right? So it behooves us to remember that our body knows and our body has this innate wisdom to support the healthiest child possible for us. And then there are lots of things to support healthier babies, right? So this is not like, oh, sorry, you're screwed. (laughs) But more like if it's not happening or if it's ending in a loss or a chemical pregnancy, then that's a really big indicator light of there needs to be work happening on both sides to increase the quality of those eggs and sperm to make sure that they can survive the next time you do get pregnant. And you've said with sperm, the turnover, they turn over roughly around every three months, but the same with well, follicles, not necessarily yes. turnover, but the grow, the grow process from sort of what we call preantral to the queen yeah. is also about three months. three months. And so I love that you say this is people who are listening don't get discouraged because now they know how many people, and this is, I have a story. So I have a friend of mine, I found, this is years ago, we're at the airport, we're headed to a conference and we're going to a conference in Las Vegas. It was not the one in December, a different one. And said, we'll see you next week. So anyway, <laughs> I said to her, like, I can't wait. Vegas, baby, this will be so fun. I can't wait to go with you. And she's like, um, so uh, I'm pregnant. <laughs> I just found out I'm pregnant. So we had this whole conversation around pregnancy. And what she had said to me, she said, I remember you saying it takes about three months for the turnover to happen. So she said, I was definitely living a life of not eating very healthy and drinking and going out, blah, blah, blah. And so we sort of changed that up because I knew it would take three months for him and three months for me to try to be the healthiest possible. And poof, here we are pregnant. And the number of times I've shared this story and then I've had women say to me like, ooh, I led a rough month, you know, last month, you know, whatever their way they, their stress or drinking, smoking, marijuana, up late, traveling, crossing time zones, whatever. And it's funny the number of times I've had women go, ooh, I should probably clean that up before. I start to think about getting pregnant. Like, right, because just as you said, we want the queen to be as queenly as possible. Absolutely. Same for the sperm that makes it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that it's important to remember that so much of this is in our power, right? It's the opposite of what I feel like the fertility world makes it sound like, which is, oh, you can't do anything about that. Oh, lifestyle has... I've actually had clients who have talked to MDs, who've talked to reproductive endocrinologists, they're like, oh no, lifestyle has no impact on your fertility. And I'm like, what? Do you know how many research studies there are about how much lifestyle actually impacts fertility? So it's definitely a big component of what you can be doing and living in attunement with remembering if you treated yourself as if you were already pregnant, what are the things that you would do naturally 
And I think everyone knows what those things are. Like, oh, yeah, I should probably eat some vegetables. And, oh, right, I should probably not drink or smoke, right? Like, most of us know what the things are already. So it's just about having that reframe of, like, you're not starting this when you get pregnant. You start this three months before you even think about getting pregnant. And that's a really good starting point of, like, okay, I've made a conscious decision that I'm going to bring a child into this world, what do I need to do? Yes, yes. And not even the lifestyle dietary choices, but the tracking choices. I mean, how many of your patients have come in and you said, do you ovulate? And they go, I have no idea. And you'll say, <laughs> when was your last period? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Talk about that. I don't have those patients anymore. <laughs> Most of them are like, here's my BBT charts for three years. Here's my LH strips. Here's this, here's that. So it were at least the ones that I talk to are like a whole new level of educated and like in it yeah. to win it. But yeah, I totally, I get where you're coming from. It's like, there are times when someone is just starting out on the journey. I actually talked to a totally random person I met who's in her early 20s. And I said to her, I was like, are they still like teaching nothing about menstruation, ovulation, female fertility in schools? And she's like, oh my God, like nothing, zero. Still? Still. Oh. And I was like, oh, that's so disappointing. <laughs> I wish it would change because I feel like we all just should know these things. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. For those who don't know, can you give a quick rundown on how do you know if you're ovulating? How would you even advise somebody to check? Mm. So there are lots of ways that you can know. One Actually, I just did a whole talk on fertility trackers that maybe should go somewhere. <laughs> but in terms of, there's a lot of tools these days. The very basic apps, quote unquote, for those of you that can't see me, the apps that are just monitoring your menstruation and they give you a random week that you're ovulating. And I say random because they're assuming that you're ovulating halfway the halfway point of your cycle. That's not always true. So if I was going based on that, even when I was trying not to get pregnant, I was tracking my cycles. But lucky for me, like, I don't even know that I learned this in medical school. It was just like one of these things where I knew when not to have sex to prevent pregnancy because I've never been on birth control. And I don't know how I knew it, but when I met my partner, he was like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, no freaking way are we having sex? <laughs> and he just couldn't, like, this whole idea of like, oh, I'm tracking and I know when I'm ovulating. And he was like, mm -mm, no, not taking any chances. Thank you. <laughs> That's hilarious. But so the way that I feel like I know is cervical mucus, which is really easy to monitor. and essentially like of maybe three days before you're going to ovulate, you'll start seeing cervical fluid. And that's the white flow is a really easy way to describe it. So you have your menstruation, then you should have a few dry days, and then you have a white flow. And that white flow is the beginning of cervical fluid. And then 
as you get closer to ovulation, that fluid is getting thinner and thinner and thinner. The day of ovulation is going to be the stretchiest, what they call, quote unquote, egg white mucus. I've never seen egg white. I don't know what that actually means, but I'm like, when it feels watery, it's the thing. It's ovulation. And then right after that, it will get thicker again. And that thicker is actually like creating a prevention barrier to get pregnant or to even think about getting pregnant at that point. So that's where they describe like tacky, sticky, like that's the non-fertile mucus. Now, not everyone has cervical mucus. So there are still other ways that you can figure this out. The other change that you might notice is that nature wants to procreate. So sex drive will go up like two to three days before ovulation. (laughs) And that is like every woman that I talk to will say, oh, yeah, actually, you're right. (laughs) And if she's not having that, then that's the thing that we need to work on is like, why aren't you having a sex drive? And by the time we give them a green light to go ahead and start trying, because we've put it on pause for a few months, will be cervical fluid, sex drive, and then temperature, which is our last checkpoint. When all three of those have clicked into place, I know this woman is going to get pregnant with complete certainty. I can be like, yep, this is going to work for you. And So the first two we talked about, the temperature is very interesting. The temperature, there's a lot of patterns that we're monitoring in basal body temperature, but the simplest is to confirm ovulation. And what you will see is that you have a low temperature and then at least a half to one degree rise in temperature when ovulation happens. And that rise should stay risen for at least three days. So if your temperature went up to 98 and then went back down to 97 the next day, sorry, either you didn't ovulate or you didn't have a good quality egg or you have gut health issues that are keeping you from having good progesterone production. So any of those could be happening, but that's the third checkpoint of whether or not you ovulated. And that temperature rise is actually good confirmation that ovulation has happened. I've heard on social media a lot of doctors talking about basal body temperature is worthless. You're not getting any information from that. It's a little bit of a disservice because you can actually see, and it's a very micro, micro change. And we teach women how to read their chart so that they can do this for themselves. But The day before ovulation, in a healthy woman with healthy hormone levels, all of the checkpoints are checked in, she will see a dip in temperature of like 0.2 degrees before the surge of temperature rise. And that's actually what I think is the LH surge. So that little dip that happens before the spike is like, hey, ovulation's coming, and now it's happened. So it doesn't happen for every single person, but majority of our women who get into good hormone balance states will see that like dip before the surge. And they're like, oh, I knew exactly when to have sex. I knew exactly when to try. And it's important. I've also heard this, Miss Nober, on on social media, maybe you have as well, where people mistake the rise in temperature as your going to ovulate as opposed to an indicator you have 
ovulated. Because yes. you yes. mentioned that the corpus luteum earlier, progesterone, progesterone is warming, which is why our temperature goes up. And so I have seen on social media, people go, oh, when you get a rise in temperature, that's when you should have sex. I'm like, nope, you missed the boat. Yeah. You have ovulated. You need to do it right before. Right. Look for the dip. You look for the dip. So <laughs> everyone's looking for that spike, but you actually look for the dip and that's how you catch it. And the other shift you might see is estrogen will actually cool the body down. So you might see a few days of a lower temperature, it dips and then it surges. So that's like even a longer window that you have with like, oh, ovulation's coming, it's coming, it's coming, and here it is. <laughs> uh, so it just takes a finer attunement to being able to understand the temperatures to understand when to start having sex. Also, if you're not at that point where you like know exactly what to look for and all of that, you can see cycle to cycle, right? You can track for maybe three months and say, oh, my surge happens every cycle day 15. So now I know that I should probably start trying on like cycle day 10 or 11 because somewhere around cycle day 15, I'm going to have ovulation. So you can still use basal body temperature tracking if that's your preferred method, or if you're working with us, that's your demanded method. <laughs> like we don't mess around. We're like, you do a basal body temperature <laughs> tracking. But it's really helpful if you're like, I'm in the dark. I don't understand all of this. Then at least see where your surges are happening. And if they're consistently happening around the same day, then you have the few days before that as your win starting window have sex every other day and you should be good. You should catch the surge or like be a day off and still good enough. Because you want the sperm there waiting for the egg. Yes. Yes, exactly. So sperm will survive for three, maybe up to five days. And the egg only survives for 12 to 24 hours. Wait, wait, let's say, Lama, we're going to repeat that one again. <laughs> 12 to 24 hours. I did a quiz on Instagram once where I asked, and it was multiple choice, how long do you think the egg lives? And the number of people who picked weeks shocked <laughs> me. 12 to 24 hours. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, again, not a thing that we learned ever, but because the sperm can survive for so many days, you still have a window. Like it's still a few days where you could potentially get pregnant, but it's mostly because the sperm are still in your system, still around, still searching for the egg to fertilize it. So if in the case of someone trying to prevent pregnancy, you really want to make sure that you've covered your entire window not just the day you ovulated, because that day alone is not going to keep you from getting pregnant. That makes sense. Okay. Now let's say somebody listening is like, check, check, check. I am doing these things. What's the next level? Like what mm. other labs should I be looking for? What other markers do you test? Are there, I mean, obviously supplement lifestyle things are very, even medication are very personalized, but there's a lot of misinformation out there. So that's why I want you to sort of hone in on like, what would be the next level of care? Yeah, I think that's a great question. 
we often go based on what are you experiencing? Like what else is happening for you, right? Because we could go down the rabbit hole of toxins. We can go down the rabbit hole of Dutch testing. We can go down the rabbit hole of nutrients, food sensitivities, gut health. There's so many things, right? So our approach is really like, let's figure out what is your body already aware of that's happening. And oftentimes it's things that we don't think are connected to fertility, right? So food sensitivities is a perfect example because they're so out of the the norm of what people are thinking about. But your gut health, and there is a paper on this that I cannot find this paper. If I know you look at studies a lot. So if you come across this, please think of me. Okay. There is a paper called uterine permeability reflected by gut permeability. So essentially this idea that if you have intestinal permeability or what's commonly called leaky gut, you likely have uterine permeability, which predisposes you to pregnancy loss. And it's essentially like whatever is happening in your gut is happening in your uterus. And if you have gut symptoms, like you have inflammation, you are bloated a lot, you have indigestion, there's any kind of gut symptoms or non-gut symptoms, which is like autoimmune conditions, joint pains, things that you are like, I don't know that any of this is related to me getting pregnant. Actually, yes, it is. And being able to test it and know, oh, yes, it is intestinal permeability. And no, we don't have a test for uterine permeability, but we can assume that that's happening also. And healing your gut will actually help support your ability to conceive and stay pregnant. So that's how I think about it is like, what else is going on? Because your body's always, it's never unexplained. And the unexplained is literally like, we don't understand what the root cause is, right? So if we can take a step back and say, oh, what are all the things that my body's saying? Oh, I have these awful periods. I have cramps all the time. I spot for three days before my cycle. I have mid-cycle bleeding, whatever the symptom is related to your cycles, all of those are an instant like get the Dutch test and understand that what's happening on micro level with day-to-day changes of hormones is impacting your fertility. Or like, oh, sorry, your CYP1A1 is upregulated and comp is not working and now that's causing more of this intermediary estrogen metabolite that's not being let out of your body and that's causing inflammation, which is causing your cramps. And we can do something about it, right? Like all of this is something we can do about it. But it's really like taking a step back and surveying your entire life and saying, what is it that is little indicators that I may not have thought are connected to fertility. Let me just chart it all down. Like, oh, I'm getting headaches like six days out of every month, right? Like that's not, what does your head have to do with your uterus? A lot. Yeah, turns out. Turns out. But most of the time we're not thinking in that way. So 
like to me, it's just thinking of it holistically and saying, what are the other things that are happening that are telling me, hey, I'm not in my most vital state of health and any lack of vitality is an instant shutdown of fertility. So when our body, mind, spirit thinks we're not in that optimal, vital state of life, it's like, well, why am I going to reproduce? I can barely survive. I'm really not trying to have a baby right now. So it's remembering that literally everything that our body is saying is a good way to figure out what to do next. And that's essentially what we're doing as coaches, guides, doctors in this process is like taking a step back and saying, okay, what are the things that your body's telling you? We're going to put it through our very mega filter of holism. And then we're going to figure out what tests to do to like figure out if our our theories are correct. (laughs) And then like create strategies that are actually going to help support the rebalance of all of the underlying stuff. Which is what's so wonderful about being able to see you or someone like you, because traditionally, let's say you go, you start off with your OBGYN. Their whole focus, of course, is obstetrics and gynecology. So they may or may not refer you to gastroenterology let's say, endocrinology or reproductive endocrinology, all the other ologies, because everyone has their expertise. That's generally what they're board certified in. And so they go, oh, oh, you have gas and bloating and and you get heartburn. That's not me. I'm going to send you over here. Oh, you have a strong family history of thyroid and disorder. Your sounds like you might have thyroid as well. That's not me. I'm going to send you over here to endocrinology. Oh, you have joint pain and other symptoms that maybe lead to autoimmune, I'm going to send you to rheumatology. And suddenly you have four or five, six specialty doctors and nobody's communicating very often. And then it gets frustrating, confusing, and anxiety provoking, which is why I love when you talk and your approach to things and the way that you approach fertility. It's one, it's very positive. There's a lot you can do. It's not unexplained. We just have to figure it out. And two, you're going to figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And we're going to keep digging till we figure it out. And what's really cool, I'm seeing this shift happening right now. We train doctors to do holistic fertility. So the number of OBGYNs that have been reaching out for this training, it's making my heart sing because I'm like, finally, there are going to be frontline people. OBGYNs are the first place you go when you're not getting pregnant and you're like, what's happening? And traditionally, they're not probably not going to guide you very well. They're not even going to do the basic blood work to say, hey, you're fine. Just keep trying or no, let's like figure out something. They don't even do that level. So I'm really excited to like have those guys being trained and being like, Actually, I see that fertility is this really growing problem. And with the number of people coming to me, I just know that I need more training in this. So I think we like, it's still too early, but my dream is really to have like every OBGYN in this country being like, oh, you have an issue with fertility. I know how to test you. 
And I know even if I'm not interested in doing fertility per se, I at least know how to direct you properly to someone who can start helping faster. That is a great dream. (laughs) (laughs) I will support you in it for sure. (laughs) Now, do you have or do you support patients and clients who are doing IVF, let's say, for whatever reason? And is that any different or do you find you're doing very similar, if not the same lab work workup, talking about the lifestyle and supplements and modifications and history and things like that? Yes and no. It really depends. So we see a lot of people who have been through multiple rounds of IVF that hasn't worked. And they're either on a break from that cycle or like taking a break from IVF cycles, or they're like, I'm just done with that. I am not putting any more energy into this. Is there something you can help with? And those people are going to be slightly different. The people that are on a break, they sometimes will come and like, I have a three week break before my next cycle. And I'm like, it's not going to make a difference. What we do is not going to help. And sure, there's like acupuncture and things like that, that could make a difference minorly. But My approach with those guys is like, okay, cool. I'm glad you have a break. And the best ROI for you is going to be like a two to three month break because that's going to be the amount of time that we need to actually create some new possibilities for you. New eggs, new sperm, whatever. So if they can extend that break for two to three months, then they're actually in a better place. And those guys will almost always have different IVF outcomes. There's one clinic that we work the closest with and they do very cool stuff as far as the reproductive world. But anyone that we have sent over there gets pregnant in the first cycle, which is super impressive. (laughs) Super impressive considering that average success rate of IVF cycles is based on six cycles. Most people don't realize that. I didn't think I know that. Oh my gosh, that's expensive. Yes, so all success rates are based on six IVF cycles, not one. And this is like straight out of so many reproductive endocrinologist mouths. The first cycle is a test cycle. So they don't ever expect you to get pregnant on the first cycle. They're like, no, we're just figuring out our hormones. That's a lot of money for a test cycle. Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) So automatically, what most people don't realize, what's being sold on media is like, oh, you go into a clinic, walk out with a baby, yay. Yes, it's expensive, but it's okay, right? And in reality, they know right from the get-go, like, we don't want, we don't think you're going to get pregnant the first time. And we're just going to prepare your body so that the second time we do this, we can have a good chance of success. Interesting. But if they come see you. (laughs) It's, yeah. It's one and done. (laughs) Hopefully. 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 Cross fingers. It's really consistent with this one clinic that we send all of our people to. Some of the other clinics, not the same outcomes, but I don't think it's us. I think it's just their protocols are different. And it's what's really interesting is I talked to the guy, the founder of the clinic that we refer to every now and then, 
And I'm like, do you realize that every single person we have sent you is getting pregnant on the first try? And he's like, yeah, it's our amazing protocols. <laughs> like, so how many people that don't work with us get pregnant on the first cycle? But it's like not a thing. So interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. But I think they don't really believe in the natural stuff. He's very interesting that way. Yeah, most of them are. Even here in Portland, when I practiced, a lot of the reproductive endocrinologists and fertility clinics tolerated, let's use that word, <laughs> tolerated, yeah. but they wanted to just take over. I mean, understandably so. They're like, look, we have a protocol. Yeah. You inject, you take pills, you get ultrasounds, you have a calendar. Controlled. It's highly controlled. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't do anything to screw it up. And that's what they would tell me. Like, sure, you can support their sleep, you can support their anxiety. Like, I'm fine if you do that stuff, but let us control the rest. And I was like, all right, well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But let's get them there as healthy as possible. Yes. Let's optimize their first round as best as possible. Mm -hmm. The other thing, the other trend that I've seen is the number of people that come from fertility clinics. They've talked to a clinic or they've like had one cycle or something. They come out with a laundry list of supplements to take. Now, so this is like becoming the standard. Here's your list of supplements. Go get them. And that's concerning, <laughs> to say the least, because not everyone needs every single one of those supplements. I've seen, you've probably seen this from Dutch World, is the number of people that are given DHEA that should not be on DHEA. And DHEA will has a Goldilocks zone. And if you're outside of that zone, you're going to shoot down your egg quality. So it's really like the blatant disregard or like disrespect of natural world. and Like, oh yeah, these are just supplements. They're not going to do anything, but take them anyway. <laughs> and matter of fact, we now have a company that's going to sell you the supplements. <laughs> so yeah. I've seen that with DIM. I have had, back in practice, so this is many years ago, I had a fertility patient who was going through IVF and their doctor said, well, you have a lot of estrogen. I've read DIM, methane, which for people who don't know, comes from the broccoli, kale, cauliflower family. It's a constituent within it that's highly concentrated. Don't think you have to stop eating broccoli. It's mm -hmm. a highly potentized supplement. So anyway, they said, "Go." I read, I learned, if you go on DIM, it'll help reduce your estrogen levels. And unfortunately, though, as you and I both know, yes, that's true, but it can also really lower estrogen. And so her cervical mucus dried up, her estrogen dropped, like everything kind of plummeted and they couldn't figure out why. And I said, well, they have you on hundreds of milligrams of something dim that's going to do that. And even though IVF is a very controlled process and generally the medications do dry up the cervical mucus anyway, like omit and stuff, she hadn't really begun the, pro she was just in the intro parts. Like, here's how we work. Here's what you do. Let's start to get you some scans. Here's your prescriptions. So we, she was just in the infancy stage of the IVF protocol when she was given the dim and within a month she's like i feel terrible i feel menopausal i'm like i'm not surprised she went on yeah. hundreds of milligrams of something that will do that for you oh if not controlled so yeah like controlled modulated let's figure out if you actually need this thing yes. because not everyone <laughs> needs to be on dim not every woman is estrogen dominant like <laughs> dhea is not gonna solve all the ivf yeah 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 oh god oh my gosh There's so much stuff 
Well, as we wrap up, though, I do want to just ask, we are the Root Cause Medicine podcast. I'm all about practical and tactical. What are your top maybe two or three pieces of advice you want to leave everyone with? Yeah, this is great. So one of them I will share, and then I'll credit this right back to you. Uh, (laughs) One of your talks really like landed something for me. So that is sleep is essential, right? Like, obviously, we all know that. But high quality sleep, and then really figuring out your cortisol awakening response has been incredible to support people to reverse their imbalance in their adrenals. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, and I like how you had approached it, at least for this talk, you said, you can test it. That's a great way to know your cortisol awakening response. The other way is, are you like hyper when you wake up or this is not your words. This is how I describe it. I love it. Hyper or like not, it takes a while to rev up. And that tells you where you are and what you can do. What we've turned that into is just like everybody needs to stop with the screens and things like the blue light stimulation things at night. You either need blue light blockers or you need to not be on the screen. And between that and then getting sunlight first thing in the morning. And that has really supported in a very fundamental way, people to have better cortisol manager, like cortisol management in the body. So that's probably my first tip. And thank you, Carrie Jones, for that. (laughs) I'll take it. (laughs) One of the things, just to add to that really quickly, that circadian rhythm, our circadian rhythm, I mean, you know this, people listening, your light, dark rhythm, circadian rhythm, controls all your other rhythms in your body. And so since we're talking fertility, your light, dark rhythm also controls your menstrual rhythm. I mean, it controls like your hunger rhythm, your feeding rhythm. It controls all your rhythms. If you have a bowel movement or not rhythm, but like your reproductive rhythm, it downstream controls that as well. And so to start off with that, I obviously absolutely love and adore because it's free, cheap, and easy, which I'm all about. And then downstream, it will help the reproductive rhythm as well. Yeah. Light in the morning, dark at night. Exactly. And the production of your own melatonin is crucial. It's not the same as supplementing melatonin. And melatonin has a direct impact on the reproductive system because it's essentially our rejuvenation response. So if you're not producing melatonin, not producing enough of it, or not at the right time of the night, you are not getting that rejuvenative healing that your body needs in order to get to that vital state. So sleep is at the core of everything. (laughs) I love it. I love it. The second tip for people listening is probably to really kind of do a toxin audit in your life, in your home, in your environment, and do as much or as little as you're able to, but do something. Everything from plastics that you're eating or drinking out of to canned goods that have the plastic inner linings to phthalates, which are all of the fragrances in our environment, to the water we're drinking, the 
cookware. It that's been a big thing because we've I've been looking for like a bread pan. And I'm like, why is it so hard to find a freaking non-toxic bread pan? So that like cookware and then makeup, body care, all of the things that we're introducing into our body that are known reproductive toxins that no one is regulating. And that is extremely scary, but it's also like we're living in a time where there is an alternative to all of it. So you don't need to be exposing yourself to most of it. Obviously, if you live in a city, you're going to be exposed to pollution. There's nothing we can do about it. But outside of that, there's a lot of control that we have. We just need to wake up and like do it. So if you guys include links in show notes, I'm happy to share. We do. Yeah. We have two different things that we can share. One is a lab test cheat sheet. So it'll give the all of the optimal ranges compared to the normals. And then we have a Divas Detox Guide, which is essentially like walk you through the home audit. Actually, is this something, because I'm sure a lot of people just have a lot of one more questions and two are like, well, how the heck do we find her? Is this on your site? Do you have Mm -hmm. this available? All right, let's go with that. How do people find you, see you, learn from you most important? Yeah. So Instagram is the best place to find me. It's Holistic Fertility Doctor on Instagram. It's also on TikTok now. (laughs) Trending on TikTok. (laughs) I love it. And yeah, that is the place to go for all things. We have you can shoot me a message like, hey, can you mention this ebook? Can you send it to me? Whatever, like send us a message. We're really on top of our DMs. I love it. And we do lots of educational things. We have, once you're on Instagram, we'll, if you want to, we can invite you into the Facebook community, which is where I do a lot of deep dive educational stuff. So all of that is free. Oh, that's so amazing. I See, free, cheap, and easy. I'm all about it. <laughs> and this topic, as we've said over and over, is not discussed. We weren't taught this in school in in our younger formative years. And to this day, it's still not taught and we need to know it. So Amatma, thank you so much for being on today. I, well, first of all, I just love you so much. But second of all, the way you teach and your analogies and everything has just been so helpful. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.